0: What think the church is not done is ask the hard question. What is it about our Christian faith that would give us a different answer than we're seeing out the rest of the world? Or does our Christian faith give us a different answer? Is there something about our Christian faith that could give us insight that others are lacking? And we're not asked those hard, sort of hard questions, and therefore we adopt the answer of the rest of the world, and we're just as polarized as the rest of the world. When we decide that we're going to really look towards elements of our faith to move forward in new refreshing, novel ways, we don't really have something to offer the rest of the world. Until we do that, we ain't got anything to offer the rest of the world they can't find themselves.
1: Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Filter. The world can be a confusing place to live in, and so what I seek to do on this show is to equip you to live with biblical clarity in our chaotic world, so that you can face the chaos of the world with wisdom, integrity, and courage. One of the most confusing aspects of our culture today, and something that we all are facing in one way or another, is the conversation over racial relationships. Uh, the you know the relationships between racial groups in our society, over racism, and the various ways that it might manifest itself in our culture today. It's a contentious conversation. It's a conversation that often brings up a lot of polarization. And one of the uh, biggest driving forces behind, really, this whole conversation, including the polarization, is this view of anti-racism. One of the biggest voices behind the anti-racism movement today is a guy named Ibram X. Kendi. He wrote the book called How to Be an Anti-Racist. He has a uh, center set up at Boston University uh, and has a very, very broad amount of influence uh, in our society today. I'm sure that many of you guys have already heard of him and are maybe somewhat familiar with his work. But thinkers and authors and speakers like Kendi or uh, Robin DiAngelo, who wrote White Fragility, have a lot of influence, not just in our culture today, but also in the church. There's a lot of different people who have spoken out and uh, offered some critiques of these ideas. One of my favorite people who has brought up some really uh, insightful, thoughtful critiques is a scholar named George Yancey. And on this episode of Filter, I'm really excited to bring you guys a conversation that I got to have with George Yancey about some of these ideas. We got to talk about uh, Ibram X. Kendi and his... Uh, ideas about anti-racism some of the the danger and the problem of these ideas we also got to go into white fragility and the issues around uh robin D'Angelo's book and the philosophy of white fragility Uh, yancey helps us to see how these ideas both anti-racism and white fragility can actually bring about a lot more harm than they can good george yancey is a scholar on race and religion in america He holds a Ph.D. in sociology from the University of Texas, and he began his career studying interracial relationships and multi-ethnic churches. Since 2019, he has been at Baylor University, working on a joint appointment in sociology and the Institute of Religious Studies. He's the author of several books, including So Many Christians, So Few Lions, Beyond Racial Gridlock, and his forthcoming title... Beyond Racial Division, a Unifying Alternative to Colorblindness and Anti-Racism. I really enjoy this conversation that I got to have, and I can't wait for you guys to check it out. Before you do that, would you make sure to uh, like this video if you're watching this on YouTube, or to leave us a rating and review if you're listening to this on uh, Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to it. Make sure you subscribe to the show so that you can get uh, updates and be notified every time we release new episodes Uh, That way, you'll never miss anything that we put out. Well, I'm just really excited to bring you guys this episode and this conversation that I got to have with George Yancey. And so without any further delay, here's my conversation with Dr. George Yancey. Dr. Yancey, welcome to the podcast.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: Yeah, well, I'm really glad to have you here. I've been looking forward to this. I've been following you uh, on social media for a while and on your blog and have just uh, really enjoyed and been challenged by, learned a lot from your writings and ideas. And so uh, so I've been looking forward to this, and I, I'm just really excited that we're going to have the opportunity to have a conversation today.
0: Thank you.
2: Thanks.
1: Yeah, and so we are talking today about one of your latest blogs uh, that you wrote over uh, over at Pathios, uh, on It is called The Dangerous World of Kendi's Anti-Racism. Uh, now, this isn't exactly the first time that you've interacted with these ideas, because you, have as you mentioned, the article is sort of a series that you've done now. Uh, But just to give people a little bit of a background, if they're not familiar with you and your work yet, uh, why do you feel a certain attraction to writing about these topics? Or what is it that got you into engaging with the ideas of anti-racism, white fragility and so on?
0: Yeah. uh, Excuse me it's sort of been a a journey for me because I I did a lot of writing on this about 15, 20 years ago Mm -hmm. that had a couple of books come out. And and one of them has uh, regained its popularity beyond uh, racial gridlock. Uh, And the events of last year sort of uh, was used to indicate to me that I needed to jump back into this fray. I am, I'm a race scholar I'm, but I'm interested in finding solutions not just documenting the problem which of course we need to do but uh, I feel I fear that that's all we ever do is document the problem we don't find mm-hmm. we don't look for creative solutions and so that's part of what I want to do is look for creative solutions as far as critiquing kindy and D'Angelo you know I I'm more of wanting to offer a solution than critique. Unfortunately, to get to the solution, you have to critique what's already out there.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And, and those are the two most popular books on anti-racism out there right now. So, yeah, you could go into the academic world and critique anti-racism on an academic level, and all of 10 people will read you. But I think that, you know, to understand how people are using these ideas – And why I think the way they're being used actually make things worse, not better. You have to go to the more popular. I know these two people are are professors, but you have to go to the more popular things people are reading out there on it. And so that's why I've chosen to do that. Don't expect me to do a whole series of critiques on anti-racism books. I don't have the time for that. Mm -hmm. I'm reading a lot of them right now. I'm preparing for my own book. But I'm not going to dive into each single one. But I think those are the two most popular ones. Those are the ones that had to be challenged, in my opinion.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think you're you're completely right on that. I think what they're writing about certainly aren't new ideas in the academic sphere, like you've been talking, like you said. But writing the academic sphere, you're reaching a much, much smaller audience. However, what's unique about D'Angelo and Kendi, uh, along with possibly a few others we could throw in there, is that uh, they have very effectively brought it into the into the popular space, uh, which, which shows itself through their book sales, media appearances and so on.
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, they have, uh, their, their books was one and two on Amazon. I don't know about the New York times, specifically, but one and two on Amazon for quite a period of time. And they, and it's, you know, part of it is it's written in an accessible manner. And part of it is it just came at the right time. that people mm. really want to try to find solutions, mm-hmm. uh, maybe like, I was really trying to figure out solutions, although my solutions were developed than a lot of individuals. Uh, and so, it just give the right time, people were grasping on something, and and this, and you know how things they just sort of snowball. And so, they they've been very popular books.
1: Yeah, and so yeah. Let, before we get into any of the specific criticisms that you write about uh, in this article, just to give people an understanding, let's just talk about first of all, what is Broad, broadly speaking, what is anti-racism? I know you you wrote how there are s- different strands of it. It's not necessarily a monolithic uh, set of thought, but as best you can, if you broadly explained anti-racism, uh, what is it?
0: You know, uh, there, right, there are different ways of looking at it. And any definition I get, someone's going to say, well, I'm an anti-racist. That doesn't describe me. So I think that my best the best way to to, uh, to find out what it is, is to read multiple anti-racists and see what strands tend to hold them together, mm-hmm. even acknowledging that there could be someone out there who says, well, I'm an anti-racist. And, and I really come with three major uh, principles from doing that. And the first is that racism is systematic and it's multifaceted and it's just a you know incorporated to our society. The degree to which it's incorporated may vary from anti racist to anti racist, but all of them talk about how racism is not just an individual thing, it's systematic, it's institutionalized, uh, you know, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Second principle that I find among most, if not all, anti racists, is that we must be very proactive in addressing and attacking it. That it is not acceptable just to sit back and say, well, it's out there. In fact, Kindy argues there's not, no such thing as a non-racist. As you're only, either you're an anti-racist or you're a racist.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Understanding race is not just meaning that you hate people of color, but that you're participating in a system of racism. So it's not necessarily your intent. That's the second thing. And then the third major principle I find, and once it varies in ways described, but I think is pretty clear, is that the role of whites in dealing with anti racism, is to support people of color. And I think that's a really key element because the first two, you know, that racism is more than individualistic and that we should address it. I can go along with that. The third one, I think, is a problem. Hmm. The third one is that if you really read between the lines, whites are not equals in dealing with anti racism. Either because whites have been the beneficiaries of anti-racism and that and they need to be held back or because, you know, that they don't fully understand it. For whatever reason, whites are not the equals in dealing with anti-racism. Their role is to support people of color in their struggle in dealing with anti-racism. And I think that is the tenet of anti-racism that's problematic.
1: Hmm. hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Those are those are really salient thoughts right there. Uh, very, very good. Um And so there are different strands, you know, there's, there's D'Angelo and, and whoever else, but what you argue in this article is, um, you wrote, and while a lot of attention has deservedly gone to criticizing D'Angelo's ideas, I have concluded that the biggest threat to potential future racial peace is Kendi's assertions about what we must do to become an anti-racist society. So why is Kendi's anti-racism the biggest threat to racial peace in your mind?
0: I think there's a couple of reasons. Uh, I think one is social position, another is ideology. D'Angelo, and I don't want to read really intentions into this, but I don't see D'Angelo trying to lead a, lead a revolution. Uh, she's pushing out certain ideas. I think they're toxic in nature, but she's pushing out certain ideas, and she's going, and she's pushing them out. Kendi, I think, wants to lead a, lead a resol, revo, resolution. Revol, not resolution, revolution. I mean, you read his book, he talks about how anti-racism can basically save, save the world as an anti-racist society. Furthermore, he's not just writing and talking. He's organizing. Uh, recently, he got $10 million from uh, some CEO from a social media company. I forget the name of the person now. escapes me. <clears throat> and so Kendi has a Center for Anti-Racism at Boston University. You get $10 million from one source like that. You can get a lot of money from other people because you can just go and say, Hey, look, this person gave me $10 million. What are you going to do? You know, I, I've learned enough how this, is how this works. Mm-hmm. So he can raise, I would say almost unlimited funding. I, you know, that's probably a little unfair, but a lot of money
1: Yeah,
0: uh, has an organization. He's, he doesn't, he's not just written his one book. He's written, you know, other books and not just books for adults. He's written, uh, books on how to uh, do uh, devotionals, in a sense, or or, or journaling on anti-racism, books for kids on Mm -hmm. anti-racism. His ideas, his his social position, due to his own efforts, I think, is much bigger than D'Angelo's, ultimately. Even though D'Angelo's probably selling a few more books. So there's that. He's going to have a bigger impact for a long period of time. He's going to eventually gain more followers than D'Angelo, I believe. But then the ideas of Kindy, I think D'Angelo, at her worst, is going to poison relationships with some people adapting her ideas and trying to implement them and make things bad in that way. Kendi is more more activistic, and he wants to change our society and change our government. And for me, the most dangerous idea he has, which I'm surprised that I got a lot more pushback on, this, is this department of anti-racism. Mm-hmm. Now, I know he can't actually do it, but he's going to push for it. And what this Department of anti racism would be, would be this government agency that has jurisdiction, federal, state, local, to alter any any laws that deem as racist. Now, before you say, well, that sounds pretty good, you know, if, if someone tries to pass a law, I interracial marriage, I want that law thrown out. Me too. I'm interracially married. But his definition of anti-racism is much more expansive than that. Read his book. Read his book on how to be anti-racist. He talks about anti anti-racist capitalism.
2: Mm-hmm. So
0: to be anti-racist is to be anti-capitalistic. Talks about anti-racism in gender roles and sexuality roles. Uh, so to be anti-racist is to be against these things as well. He even talks about you know if you are not a if you're not willing to engage in uh, dealing global warming because global warming affects the non-white global south more than the non than the white global south, then that's racist. To be anti-racist is to deal with, with global warming. Now, I'm not saying any of these things are wrong. All these things are wrong. You know, they're controversial and it's not a given that they're automatically right. So this, the of anti-racism in theory could not just speak to laws uh, that directly impact on what we think about racism, Put on global warming, on capitalism, on gender, on sexuality. It is, I would say, in essence, a Supreme Court controlled by anti-racists to go in and change laws as they want. Is this mm-hmm. That's an incredibly dangerous idea. And no, he's not going to get that. But this is the goal that he, with his organization power, is shooting at. And a lot of people are going to go along with this goal. And that's going to bring a lot of racial strife in our society. So this is why I think Kenny is more dangerous than D'Angelo.
1: Yeah, and I absolutely agree. And I, and I think that uh, the the Department of Anti Racism, especially as you pointed out, uh, I think rightly is a very very frightening idea. Um, uh, it, it sounds like, uh, you know, hello uh, fascism. Anybody? <laughs> you know? yeah. Um, and that uh, you point out in the article that. In the way that he proposes it, it would be a department with no oversight. Uh with, right, right. with yeah, no, has no oversight. With no uh, yeah. with no appointees?
0: No appointees. They're, the appointees are people who are who are trained in anti racism.
2: Mm-hmm. So
0: the appointees are people that obviously you know so there's there's no chance of a future administration saying, Look, you've gone too far, I'm gonna start putting people in there who's gonna reign you back. They cannot be rained back.
1: Mm-hmm. You
0: know, if he got if he if he got his truth department.
1: Yeah. And then unlike the Supreme Court, which, well, there's, you know, some checks and balances there because the the judges, the justices do have to go through uh, somewhat of a appointment process. Uh, They interpret laws according to their constitutionality, Uh, whereas what the Department of Anti-Racism would do would be evaluating laws and so on and how acceptable or unacceptable they are to Abram X. Kennedy.
0: Yeah. You know, or someone similar to his ideas. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which probably would be someone influenced by candy. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, I mean, it's, it, it, yeah. Is it a power grab? Absolutely. And, and that power grab is a part of what makes it very dangerous.
1: Yeah. And I agree. I think that, like, like you said, the, uh, the possibility that a department of anti-racism would actually be established is, is pretty unlikely I agree with that. What I see or or, or consider being much more likely is that uh, it is, you know, unofficially established just by the popularity of these ideas taking off with different people who are working in these in in the various, you know, bureaucratic offices and departments of the government, and then leaders in existing uh, departments already starting to, you know, run their their department, whether it's the Department of Education, Transportation, right, yeah. whatever else, as if it is a Department of Anti-Racism.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's much more likely. Obviously, you know, my fear is not we're going to have a Department of Anti-Racism 10 years from now, 20 years from now, or ever, because of all the barriers you have to go. I mean, you would literally need a constitutional amendment in order to establish this. Mm-hmm. But he is influencing people that think along these lines that I mean, think about what it takes to say, "Look, I need an apartment that forces laws that I believe are right on." You know, at the state, federal, local level. So you're not getting away from this if you're a local, down, you know, state, federal, local level. That's our mentality. Then you know, people will bring into the decisions they make in other parts of the government, in other ways in which they, you know, perhaps in, in the ways in which they run their companies. And so there could what what I would. What I fear more than the natural part of being established, which we agree is not going to happen, is an attitude of this is morally right. If you don't do this, you're morally wrong. You're, in a sense, maybe even evil. Uh, even though Canada does not use those terms, but I think people would that would that would be the natural evolution of his ideas.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, therefore, I'm totally justified in to whatever I can to stop you, and to implement what I believe is morally right yeah and that sort of attitude is is much more likely to develop and have all sorts of repercussions in our society,
1: yeah yeah you also explained how uh one of the one of the dangers of kindy's thought and approach is that he actually actually finds it acceptable uh to practice racial discrimination if it's if it's according to his rules, and how something like this department would be uh would be would have full license to be able to practice racial discrimination, you know, uh, primarily against against whites uh, in the name of anti-racism. Uh, and I think you know you already saw a glimpse of that in whenever the COVID vaccines first started coming out, and you had different people uh, across the country suggesting that they were going to priori- prioritize people of color in receiving the vaccines first. You know, no, no, why? No good reason, really, other than in the name of equity or anti-racism.
2: Yeah. Yeah, Kitty
0: does say that a discrimination is acceptable if you're trying to to overturn racist, racism discrimination. And I think you, you bring up an interesting example. Now, let's just put on the table. For whatever reason, I'm not, you know, I'm not studying the literature to know exactly why this is. People of color, blacks and Hispanics, are getting COVID vaccines at lower rates than whites. No, there's no doubt about that. And so to say, we need to look into why that is the case and how we correct that is totally appropriate. Mm-hmm. But what I found inappropriate, and I say this, having an elderly white mother-in-law and, and ha- was concerned that she got vaccinated as soon as possible, <clears throat> is to say, all right, we're going to vaccinate pe- you know healthy people of color in lieu of unhealthy white folks, which would, in my opinion... Guarantee the death of some, some whites at the expense of someone who could have gone without a vaccination for, for a period of time. Uh, to me, that's tol- that's very different from saying, why are we having this, these discrepancies? Is it internally within the culture of colors that they, that those people are, are withdrawing from the vaccination? Are there systems that are not making it as accessible to them as white? Very legitimate question. In fact, I would want to know the answer to that question. As opposed to saying, okay, to make things equal, we know there's two populations, healthy people of color, whites who are not healthy. We're going to get the vaccination of healthy people of color more than whites who are unhealthy, even though the result is going to be more than we're going to die off because we want in a sense of equality. To me, that's totally unacceptable Mm. uh, rather than looking at the, the larger, more important issue.
1: Yeah but in Kendi's thought that would be acceptable and even justified.
0: It could be. I, mean, I can't put words exactly. Well, sure. It,
1: it, it yeah. could be
0: acceptable. Yeah. You know, I don't know in this particular situation. He's. I don't know if he said anything about this particular situation, but here's the danger. All right. Let's say Kendi would say, no, 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 no. That's not what I mean. I think someone could take his ideas and come to that conclusion.
2: Mm.
0: You know? So even if he doesn't intend to, uh, to, to, Say, okay, healthy white people, you can. I mean, unhealthy white people, you can die. Even if he said, no, 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 that's not where I'm going. I think someone's saying that because he, you know, his his argument that discrimination could be justifiable, you know, to correct inequities. There is an inequity right now. Someone could put those two together and make that argument, and it wouldn't be out of the range of what he is what he is saying. Now you have to be careful of saying that because sometimes people go crazy, go with crazy ideas with one person's argument. And if we if we limit our arguments to things that no one could take and and twist into something weird, we never argue anything. But to me, that an that, that is acceptable way of applying kindy in this particular situation. Mm. Even if he doesn't agree with it in that situation, maybe he does. But even if he doesn't agree with that, that's perfectly acceptable because he says discrimination is acceptable in order to correct, and that. You know there is no such thing as a non-racist, so we can't look at this as a non-racist approach. So those are some of the problems with candy.
1: Yeah, what he's suggesting appears to be a uh, a gigantic shift in the way that people in America, I think, used to think about what it meant to fight racism um, before. And you've already brought this up. There was either uh, someone was a racist or did or said something which was racist or there was not being a racist. You know, you and then you brought up, well, Kenny already says, nope, that's not how it works. You're either racist or you're an anti-racist. There's no non-racism. Uh, and how fighting racism used to mean that we treat everyone equally, um, that we treat everyone with dignity, that if there are barriers to holding someone back, well, then we work on, you know, removing those barriers so that they get equal opportunity. Um, but now in anti-racism, it seems that they are going uh, much further than that, to, than just saying that we ought to treat everyone equally. It seems that in some circumstances they say we ought to treat people differently, you know, unequally. Uh,
0: yeah, I think that that's a third tenet. Yeah, I think I think that's the third tenet of anti-racism. I think it's the one that. Uh, many people are not going to want to admit, but I, I, if you look at the writings uh, uh, of anti-racists, uh, now Kendi will say that blacks can be racist. Kendi will argue that blacks can be racist if you, you know, it can be racist if you do not follow or support the ideas that he says to tear down racism. And so for Kendi, the role of whites is to support this, his idea of anti-racism developed in the black community. Uh, not to bring in your own ideas, but here's the ideas that are there. Uh, it looks differently with different individuals. Uh, oh, there was one person I, I just read his book. He talked about why I don't talk about to white people anymore, and the role of whites. Uh, and he and he says this in the book. So I'm not, you know, uh, implying he actually says this, the role of whites is to is to fund uh, people of color and support them, and then talk to other whites about being, you know, about their anti racism, and that's their role. The role is not to participate in thinking on how we're going to go ahead. Uh, and, and you can see this from time to time, the be the bridge. We know from, you know, it's pretty public that they have rules for whites. And whites are not allowed to challenge people of color and be the bridge in the same way that people of color are allowed to challenge whites. Hmm. So conversation becomes pretty stilted uh, under these sort of conditions. And you, and you can go down and look at other anti-racism and, and the role of whites. And, and, and it varies, so it's not, you know, so you're not, you can't say that it's the same for all of them, except uh, what do, does appear to be a common thread is that the worldwide is never to participate in a conversation people of color on how to solve racial problem, is to support their ideas, is to, you know, to give them funding, to, to, uh, to help them feel better in D'Angelo's world, but not to participate in the conversation. And that is, you know, that is lacking in anti-racism literature.
1: Yeah. Um. So back to that, that shift that and how I think Americans are starting to view what it means to be racist and to fight racism, which Kendi and D'Angelo, the anti-racist movement has, has largely effectuated. Uh, what is it in their worldview that if, if you can, you know, having studied their writings, if you can point it out, what is it that's, in, in their worldview that's caused and changed this shift to go from saying that, uh, well, there's no such thing as being uh, a non-racist, you're either racist or anti-racist uh, being an anti-racist means doing many things, which would have been considered discriminatory, you know, or, or unequal in the way that we used to consider fighting racism. Um, it, it, yeah. So if you can point out like, what is it in the, in the worldview of anti-racism that has caused this shift?
0: See, I don't think these ideas are new. I think you. I think you could find these ideas twenty, thirty, forty years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, in, in more academic literature and and more of the, uh, the discussion in scholarly faculty lounges, perhaps that sort of stuff. I think what's changed is that society has changed to be more accommodating those ideas, due to some some of the racism, some of the some of the horrible racism we saw last year, and because of that, people are saying, "Okay, what I gotta do is stop it," and they're open. To these sort of ideas but these ideas are, are, are i mean i've not gone into i mean i guess if you want to look at some of the uh, work of uh oh uh, you look, for example some of the black theology work uh, to some degree uh if you want to look at uh some of the emergence of critical race theory and 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 and, uh, and, and, and you know you could get some of these ideas from that uh so you can you can find these ideas for, for quite a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the way they frame it may be a little bit new, but but the ultimate core of their ideas is uh, D'Angelo and Kendi and, and some of the other anti racism is, is not that new.
2: Yeah.
1: So back to the article, something, another point that I found really interesting, and you already brought this up, but <laughs> I wanted to circle back to it. You wrote, uh, to be an anti racist in Kendi's definition is not merely about having the right ideas about racial issues, but it is also having the right ideas about gender, sexuality, our economy, our space among other areas of our lives. Uh, so why does Candy's anti-racism include these other areas and categories like genders, sexuality, and economics? I think for a lot of people, myself included, it's, it's a little mind boggling. Uh, yeah. why are these in the same realm? In other words, what's the connection?
0: Well, what Kinney argues is that uh, anything that creates differences through the racial groups—that uh, that's racism. So it's not just if you intend to do it; it's just if you, you also—and and, this—and this is an argument that's very old and well established. And, and I I agree to some degree that there are institutions. Well, I agree. that there are institutions that create racism and create these differences. So anything that creates differences is, is a problem with racism. And so, you know, honestly, as far as things, gender and sexuality, I'm not so really sure how, how he rationalizes it. I gave you one example on global warming, on an issue that we normally would not think of, oh, this is about racism. And Kenny says, yes, it is about racism, because when you don't feel global warming, you're hurting non-whites more than whites. Capitalism. Uh, Kinney would argue that capitalism, would argue that capitalism hurts marginalized people in general, including marginalized white people, who may benefit from a racial, from racism, but capitalism hurts them worse, hurts them, but it hurts worse people of color. So since capitalism hurts people of color worse than it hurts uh, whites, then it, it too is racism. Uh, so that's how Kennedy gets to make this argument that racism is not just what things that we find directly impacting racism, like, you can make an argument about, you know, voting rights, you know, the way you do voting rights. Well, that directly on, on racism, you can agree, disagree, fine. But things such as capitalism, global warming, you know, he's made some connections with gender and sexuality as far as racism. Probably he would argue that uh, that uh, people of color, the women of color, and such a minorities of color face worse problems than others. And so that's that, that's a so when you hurt those folks, you're hurting those people more,
2: uh,
0: and that's how he, he could get this expansive definition of racism that can pervade almost all the elements of areas of our lives.
1: Yeah, but at the same time, one of your critiques, uh, and you know, being a scholar yourself, is that they, uh, and by they, I mean Kendi and D'Angelo, uh, very often don't provide the data or evidence behind the different our arguments that they propose. And so, um, I know that's true. Uh, you said in this article for, uh, for the solutions they provide that they don't provide any yeah. evidence that right. their solutions can actually work. Is this, does the same thing apply to, uh, to, to this as well is do they provide yes, evidence?
0: Absolutely. Kenny provides no evidence that, that if we do what he does, he says for us to do it, will get us anymore. And the reason why it doesn't provide any evidence is the evidence isn't out there. In fact, the evidence is the other way around. And you know, it's not that this is something that's brand new. People have been trying it, and and now we haven't gathered evidence. Uh, diversity training and, and this sort of programs, whether it's been called anti-racism or 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 something in the past, that's been That's been done for decades now, and the research has indicated that it does not make things better. And in many ways it, it can make things worse. So and, and this is something that I, I really find in a lot of the anti-racism stuff that I read is no one provides evidence that this actually works. Uh, or maybe that maybe there's some limited evidence that's in certain ways that they may be provided that I'm missing, but who are not providing evidence that actually works. And so we're going to embark on what I think is a dangerous journey without without being able to rely on that and say, Hey, you know, we have, we have have reason to believe that this is, this is actually going to work and we don't. Uh, and I think that's problematic.
1: Mm -hmm. Isn't there actually evidence, even if it's not a a great amount of evidence that, uh, evidence to the contrary, that these ideas in fact don't work and they, they bring about more negative results than positive.
0: Yeah, there is. Uh, you know, there's a study out there that shows that when you talk about privilege, that actually what happens is that people have developed more animosity towards whites, but their attitude towards blacks doesn't change. So talking about privilege actually just creates higher levels of animosity. There's, <coughs> sorry, there's evidence out there, research, not just anecdotal evidence, research. they showing that when when you uh, introduce uh, diversity training, that a lot of times what it, it creates, high, a backlash hostility towards it. And it also creates, uh, uh, feelings that, okay, we got diversity training. So we've solved the problem of racism in our company. Not to do anything else. Uh, there's research shows that diversity training in corporations, and you look at them five years later, they actually have less people of color working in management positions than they did when you first have it. Wow. So yeah, there's evidence that this doesn't work. Uh, can you find some small studies that show that, Hey, we've had some success here. Yes, you can. But then what we call meta analysis, which is looking at multiple studies has shown that when it comes to long-term effects, adversity training does not create long-term tolerance. So if we want something that, that we know that science based, that we have confidence could work, this is not the way to go.
1: Yeah. One thing that makes me think about, uh, is, uh, Shelby Steele's book on uh, white guilt. And he argues that many of the efforts to uh, combat racism or to do diversity training and whatever else don't actually serve the improvement of racial relationships. uh, Certainly don't add to the improvement of, uh, of black lives, but really all they do is help uh, white companies and white institutions prove that they're not racist.
0: Yeah, I've not read that book completely, but uh, I, I came to the same conclusion as to why people are doing anti-racism, uh, why companies are doing anti-racism. Because if, if you're accused of racist, racism, uh, and remember, racism can be a very expansive accusation. So you don't have to prove that someone is personally racist, although you you, you probably find that in a company large enough. Then what you do is you hire an anti-racism trainer, and you bring the programs in there, and even though the programs don't do anything, you now have probably legal cover and some degree of social cover that you're a com- you're coming doing good things, and as a result of this, uh, I don't know if you know this, but every year companies spend eight billion dollars on diversity training. Wow! Now I can't say all of that is anti-racism. All right, so I don't know how what percentage of that is anti-racism percentage is not, but I'd be willing to bet a good chunk of my next year's salary that that more than half of it is based on anti-racism. Just given the attitude towards anti-racism today, uh, I would bet that a good chunk of it is. But yeah, uh, so companies are spending money for image maintenance for programs that don't work.
1: Wow. It almost sounds, it makes me think of uh, the, the Roman Catholic practice during the Reformation of purchasing indulgences you know, you have your sins. And so you purchase an indulgence from, uh, Robin D'Angelo that absolves you from, from that. It's sin. also
0: why, uh, you know, uh, efforts towards anti racism can get a lot of financial support because what, what can show you that, Hey, we're not really racist. Then they give $10 million to a center for anti-racism.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, whether it works or not is, is irrelevant. In fact, i come to the conclusion that it doesn't matter whether or not adhere to work from the point of view of these companies, since it gives them cover. Now, if something actually does work, will they take it? That's a good question.
1: Yeah. So on Robin D'Angelo, uh, you've written another article criticizing the concept of in her book, White Fragility. Uh what are your critiques of white fragility?
0: Well, uh, White fragility you know, is a concept that the reason why whites act the way they do that their defensiveness, which inhibits us being able to deal with racism, is due to this unique phenomenon called white fragility. Okay, As an academic, uh, she relies heavily on what we call implicit bias uh, studies, which they're not always that reliable. Uh, there's probably something there, but we don't know what it is. And People who have tried to link implicit bias to prejudice have been able, unable to do that. So when D'Angelo argues that we're going to, you know, you may have implicit bias that, that has this hidden prejudice, that goes without any sort of real research to backing that up. Okay, so, so that's one problem of it. The other problem is if if, you know, if there's white privilege, is this unique to whites? is there any research out there that shows that whites are defensive in ways that people of color are not? No, there's no research out there on that. So she's coined a concept that's the void of any empirical uh, assessment, any empirical support. Now, you know, I'm not coined a concept orange monkeys, you know, has no empirical support. And I can say, Hey, let's, let's believe in orange monkeys and people can laugh at me and no empirical support. But that's not doing any damage. White fragility, I think, is doing damage. Because what it does is it shuts down conversations. According to D'Angelo, if you're white, what can you do? Can you protest? No, that's white fragility. Can you be mad? No, that's white fragility. Can you cry? No, that's white fragility. Can you you justify yourself? No, that's white fragility. The only thing you can do is be totally 100% supportive of what people of color say. Now, I don't know whether you're married or not. Uh, if you are, if you are looking for a relationship, where the person you're, you're married to is 100% supportive of everything you say, I'm not saying support in general. Of course, we want people to be support in general, and, and as a person, I want people support in general. Mm-hmm. But whatever utterance comes out, you have to support it. Just think of how huge my head would grow. How huge your head would grow. How huge your, anyone's head would grow. It's not healthy for people of color to have white fragility around. Uh, It's not healthy for whites to not be able to express their own frustrations. In theory, and I'm not saying D'Angelo would support this, but once he gets back to, in theory, if this fits in with your framework, even though you don't support it, you have to account for that. And there are ways she she can account for that, but she doesn't. In theory, if a black man at a company made a sexually suggestive comment to a white woman um, could she protest in theory maybe not because he could come back and say that's your white fragility you see me as a black man as a sexual creature your white fragility is coming out and what can she say in dangelo's framework mm-hmm. d'Angelo does not even bother to say well there can be abuses and here are some abusive situations which you don't which you're allowed to speak out She doesn't provide whites with even that. Hmm. So why could that not be acceptable in D'Angelo's framework? It can. You know, if she wants to come out and say, all right, here's some exceptions, then I will accept that and say, okay, you know, I can't use that as an example any longer. But until she does that, that is a perfectly perfectly legitimate um, application of white fragility. So, you know, it's... I think it's a horrendous idea for race relations and can be misused and undoubtedly has, has been misused, Mm -hmm. uh, in, in our conversations today.
1: Yeah. I think you're absolutely right. Because I know that she says, uh, well, I know that in her training, uh, seminars that she does, she, some of the rules that she sets out is that white women are are not allowed to cry, uh, because she argues that the tears of white women are traumatic for people of color. Uh, And was specifically, I, th- I think the way that she backs up that argument is by bringing up examples from, uh, you know, the the era of slavery and Jim Crow, sure. yeah, uh, and where you know uh, a white woman might have made some kind of a uh, accusation that she was mistreated or assaulted or or whatever else oh, yeah, that, by a oh, black that, man. That
0: absolutely happened. there. Happened. Oh yeah, yeah, and those things or,
1: happen. Yeah,
0: and. And I'll even go say is, you know, uh, it, it probably still happens today that, you know, that there are white women making false accusations against Af- uh, people of color uh, and using their tears to put in a person of color. I, I, we know that, that there's cases of an African-American well, there's this football player that's in jail for six years, I forget his name now, and a white woman made a false accusation uh, and her tears put him in jail. I mean, yeah, th- that's true. That's not a blanket uh, condemnation of all tears that a white woman may want to shed. The fact that some white women have abused that and and misused that, you know, is clearly the case.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: That does not mean that it it, it cannot be appropriate for a white woman to, to shed tears for situation for, her, for how she deals with it.
2: Mm-hmm. And so,
0: you, you know, you, I mean, we could take anything and say, this has been misused in this cir- circumstance. Therefore, you can't you ever use this again. And that would be crazy.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and I think that one of the greatest uh, dangers and harms of white fragility is the the harm that it does to interpersonal relationships. And as you've already stated before, and as I, I know I've read it in other places, how uh, people report uh, after going through these seminars or experiencing some of these ideas, they uh, they find themselves less willing to have some of these conversations, less willing to engage in. Uh, in conversations across racial lines, whether it be or, you know, about racism, uh, because they feel like they're going to be considered guilty the moment they step into the conversation. Yeah. You know, and I, I was talking to somebody yesterday, yeah. uh, a mature, godly Christian man who uh, who said that he was seeing that within himself, how he was pulling back from having these conversations uh, because, you know, he had experienced some specific circumstances of being called uh, a racist simply for having a difference of opinion and ideas and then that's led him now to you know saying that he he felt suspicious and and nervous to uh to even engage in these conversations because he was afraid that he was going to be called a racist uh and i and i know I've, i've talked to several other people who feel the same way
0: yeah i've had people approach me and say similar things is that you know uh, and these are people who want to deal with racism this is not people who want to ignore racism mm-hmm. and, and you know I, I'm critical of what I call a colorblind perspective people who say there's no problems let's just you know uh, ignore the problems that are out there and, mm-hmm. and, and, and ignore racial differences so I'm critical of that no doubt and I want my white brothers and sisters to work with me to deal with racism I want them to understand some of the frustrations I have and, and, and to move together absolutely want that. But having said that, I totally understand the white person says I'm not going to talk about racism because I can't win. You know, if I make any sort of disagreement I'm a racist, the only thing I can do is agree. If I don't agree, then it eats me up inside to agree to say I agree with something I don't agree with. I can't win. Uh, I care about racism. But if this is what you're going to ask of me, you can count me out. I know that because I know there's certain situations where I feel you know, not on not race. I, I think I'm probably, I'm probably immune on, on racial issues for a variety of reasons. Uh, but, you know, other situations where I go, you know what, if I'm not allowed to be honest, then I'm just going to pull out of this conversation and I'm just going to put my energy somewhere else. And so I I think this is one of the costs of anti-racism. The stifling the conversation actually pushes people away. And I, while it's popular today, at some point that is going to fall apart, mm. but not before it's going to bring a lot of people into uh, conflict and not be- before it, it creates a lot of racial alienation mm-hmm. and alienation. I think it's going to survive beyond the survival of the framework of anti racism.
1: Mm. Well, as you've already said before, along with that, this alienation, how polarized we are over these ideas right now, um, regarding uh yeah really re- regarding just just race and racism in general we become even more polarized as uh, due to these ideas and in our country today and one thing that's really bothered me that i was wanting to get your insight on uh is how to me it seems as though the church is equally as polarized uh as the broader culture in the world today you, if you go on to the various blogosphere of the christian world if you go onto twitter and see the conversations among you know some of the i guess leading christian thinkers right now uh there is as just as much polarization alienation among christians and the church uh, as in the world we we don't seem to have it anymore more together uh, on these issues we don't seem to have a a stronger unity or answer for these issues than the world does. And that really bothers me. And I wonder why, uh, why is that? What do you think?
0: Yeah, I think the church, what the church has done is they've adopted the ideas out of the world and, and some people out of the world are saying ignore race, just, you know, be colorblind. And some Christians adopted that idea. Others are saying anti-racism is the way to go. Adopt that as the are adopting that idea. And then we come to the church, and we are just as contentious as the rest of the world. Why the church is not done is ask the hard question, what is about our Christian faith that would give us a different answer than we're seeing out the rest of the world? Or does our Christian faith give us a different answer? Is there something about our Christian faith that could give us insight that others are lacking? And we're not asked those hard, sort of hard questions, and therefore we adopt the answers of the rest of the world, and we're just as polarized as the rest of the world. When we decide that we're going to really look towards elements of our faith to move forward in new, refreshing, novel ways, we'll have something to offer the rest of the world. Until we do that, we ain't got anything to offer the rest of the world that they can't find themselves.
1: Mm. That's great. And so what opportunities do you see for the church to engage in our culture today? Like, do you see any specific areas Uh, related to this conversation where the church has an opportunity to really present a witness that we have not been taking advantage of, whether because, you know, we've just been blind to it or we've just been too disunified to see it.
0: Glad you asked because I'm working on a book on that, (laughs) Uh, which should come out in February from university called beyond racial division. Uh, My basic idea is this. I think that one of the key philosophical or theological, however you want to put it, difference between, Christianity, and at least secular ideologies, whether it's different from other religions, is debatable, is the whole idea of human depravity. That we, are, that we are fallen creatures. As fallen creatures, we tend to find solutions that meet our needs, but not necessarily the needs of everyone else. And so we need accountability. We want to operate out our own group interests and not necessarily concentrate on the interests of other folks. And for me, the way we get, get that here on Earth is through having what I would call collaborative conversations with one another, where we talk for purposes, uh, for goal-oriented purposes. Uh, we listen for understanding. Uh, we don't engage in conflict; like conflict, and then we try to find solutions that everyone can live with, rather than solutions that's for our team. Uh, I think this is an idea that we can push. It's an idea that's supported by research. This idea that I think support theologically, because what differentiates I think Christianity from say, humanism, you know, because both of them would say humans are great. You know, humans would say humans are great because we're rational and 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 that you know we're we're we, could, we we're perfectible. Christians say humans are great because we're, we're made in the image of God. So we're not different in that sense. Mm-hmm. What We are different is that humanism would say we're perfectible, we're moving towards perfection. Christians say we're great. But we also have human depravity within us. If we're not careful, that can overwhelm us and create awful systems. Understanding that and holding each other in check through these cloud conversations, which I'll talk about in the book, uh, is, I think, a Christian way in which we can offer something that's not being seen out in the rest of the
2: world.
1: That's great. And I'm I'm looking forward to that book. It sounds like it's going to be incredibly helpful and insightful. One thing that I you know in, in talking about uh, creating these collaborative <coughs> conversations to to move forward and just in, in this whole conversation over racism and in, in, in society, uh, one question that I often have is is what are the goalposts? you know what what are the outcomes and things that we want that we should be striving for? Uh, in other words, w- when do we know that we're we're achieving? whatever it is that we're going for. Cause I, I think that uh, everyone, especially in this conversation over anti-racism it, is giving different visions of, of when are we finally achieving the society that we ought to have when it comes to um, racial relationships? You know, is it, is it economic equity or is it uh, the hitting the diversity quotas in our universities and corporations, or uh, is it something related to, to crime and, and, Policing, you know, what as Christians uh, with discernment from what we're hearing the anti-racist group say the goalpost is, what should be our goalpost? How do we know uh, when we're starting to reach the the future that we ought to be striving for?
0: Here's, here's how I would argue that. I would argue that we've reached it under, under what I propose with our society stigmatizes people who refuse to engage in the conversation as much as they today stigmatize people who engage in racism. That today is totally unacceptable to engage in racism. Now, doesn't many people who don't do it, but I'm just saying that if you do so, people are going to stigmatize you. They're going to look down upon you. It, and unless people think that, well, of course, that was not the case 30 years ago, 40 years ago. We engage in racism and people will accept it they may not like it, but they will accept it today is not acceptable
2: mm-hmm.
0: when we reach the point in our and you all know what my goalposts are which probably won't happen in my lifetime hopefully when my son's lifetime my son's lifetime we reach the point in our society to where where, where people refusal to engage in a cloud conversation is stigmatized as much as the, the refusal to renounce racism today is we have reached it because by that point we will really engage in so many collaborative conversations that we will really have found solutions that people can live with. Is of solutions that our group benefits from at the expense
2: of others?
1: Mm-hmm. Great. Well, uh, this has been a really great conversation. I've enjoyed it. Uh, you've uh, really given me a lot of helpful insight to, uh, to Kendi, D'Angelo, the anti-racism issue, uh, as long as, as well as, you know, the, the Christian response. Uh, so thanks a lot for joining us for this episode today. Uh, do you want to tell people where they can find more of your work, uh, how they can support your work and, uh, get connected with you?
0: Sure. Uh, on the website, uh, georgiancy.com. It's all one word, georgiancy, Y-N-C-E-Y, not C-Y, C-E-Y. Mm-hmm. Uh, that goes to a different georgiancy. Uh and, and you can see some of my books there. And, uh, and of course, the new one comes up in February. I'll put that into that website. Uh, you can also find me. I work at Baylor University. So if you want go Google Baylor and Georgiancy, that'll come up too. So those are a couple of ways in which you can find me. Yeah,
1: Awesome. Awesome. Well, like I said, uh, at the beginning of the show, I've i I've been following you for a while and have really benefited and uh, learned a lot from your, your work and writing. So I hope that our listeners uh go and dig in more into what you have said because i think the the ideas that you've been writing on uh your criticisms as well as your uh positive contributions and suggestions are really important for us to to uh to start implementing and learning um because they're based in a christian worldview first and foremost uh but then you also have your expertise and scholarship to, to go along with it which is really helpful so uh so once again uh dr yancey i just want to thank you so much for joining us today on this episode of filter thanks for having me thanks for listening i hope this episode provided you with biblical clarity to live with confidence in our confusing world if you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast please share it with others post about it on social media or leave the, the, the rating now my to, to catch up latest from me you can go to my website aaronchamp.com while you're there subscribe to my newsletter so that you can be updated anytime I share new content you can also follow me on Facebook Instagram and Twitter at Aaron M. Champ thanks again and I'll see you next time until then hold fast to